Here we are, grasshoppers, back again. We're gonna read 1984, part two. Hello, part two, and we're at uh, chapter ten. Let's see what happens. I actually started dreaming about this stuff too. <laughs> I have very interesting, complicated dreams, and I. Uh, the mind has mixed a lot of things together. I've been laughing a little bit lately, actually, for how complicated they are. The only thing I don't like as much is that my dog that just passed away keeps also coming in the dreams. <laughs> so it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> so when I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh, Mimi. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, it's a dream, it's a dream, chill out. So, hey, let me know if you're having some kind of deja vus or, you know, some weird dreams yourself. Anyway, so chapter 10. Let's see how long this one is. When he woke, it was with the sensation of having slept for a long time. But a glance at the old-fashioned clock told him that it was only 20.30. He lay dozing for a little while, then the usual deep lunch singing struck up for the yard below. It was only an openless fancy, it passed like an April die, but a look on a word and the dreams they stirred, they have stolen my heart, my heart away. <laughs> Jeez. The driveling sound seemed to have kept its popularity, you still heard it all over the place. He had outlived the hate song. Julia woke at the sound, stretched herself luxuriously, luxuriously, <laughs> and got out of bed. I'm hungry, she said. Let's make some more coffee. Damn, the stove's gone out and the water's cold. She picked the stove up and shook it. There's no oil in it. We can get some from old Carrington, I, ex I expect. The funny thing is, I made sure it was full. I'm going to put my clothes on, she added. It seems to have got colder. Winston also got up and dressed himself. The indefati indefatigable, indefatigable voice sang on. They sigh what time yields all things. They sigh you can always forget. <laughs> But the smiles and the tears across the years, they twist my heartstrings yet. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, these songs, are like, why are you even singing them? They depress you. And he fastened the belt of his overalls. He strolled across the window. The sun must have gone down behind the houses. It was not shining into the yard any longer. The flagstones were wet and as though they had just been washed. And he had the feeling that the sky had been washed too, so fresh and pale was the blue between the chimney pots. Tirelessly, the woman marched to and fro, corking and uncorking herself, singing and falling silent, and pegging out more diapers, and more, and yet more. He wondered whether she took in washing for a living, or was merely the slave of twenty or thirty grandchildren. Julia had to come across to his side. Together they gazed down with a sort of fascination, at the sturdy figure below. As he looked at the woman in her characteristic attitude, 
her thick arms reaching up for the line, her powerful mare-like buttocks protruded. It struck him for the first time that she was beautiful. It had never before occurred to him that the body of a woman of fifty, blown up to monstrous dimensions by childbearing, then hardened, roughened by work till it was coarse in the grain like an overripe turnip, could be beautiful. But it was so, and after all, he thought, why not? The solid, contourless body, like a block of granite. <laughs> granite, sorry. Granite. I'm thinking. The granatine. The, the one you eat, you know. <laughs> Never mind. And the rasping red skin bore the same relation to the body of a girl as the rose hip to the rose. Why should the fruit be held inferior to the flower? She's beautiful, he murmured. She's a meter across the hips easily, said Julia. That is her style of beauty, said Winston. He held Julia's supple waist easily encircled by his arm. From the hip to the knee, her flank was against his. Out of their bodies, no child would ever come. That was the one thing they could never do. Only by word of mouth from mind to mind could they pass on the secret. The woman down there had no mind. She had only strong arms, a warm heart, and a fertile belly. He wondered how many children she had given birth to. It might easily be fifteen. She had had her momentary flowering, a year, perhaps, of wild rose beauty. And then she had suddenly swollen like a fertilized fruit and grown hard and red and coarse. And then her life had been laundering, scrubbing, darning, cooking, sweeping, polishing, mending, scrubbing, laundering, first for children, then for grandchildren over thirty unbroken years. At the end of it she was still singing. The mystical reverence that he felt for her was somehow mixed up with the aspect of the pale cloudless sky stretching away behind the chimney pots into interminable distances. It was curious to think that the sky was the same for everybody, in Eurasia or East Asia, as well as here. And the people under the sky were also very much the same everywhere, all over the world. Hundreds of thousands of millions of people just like this, people ignorant of one another's existence, held apart by walls of hatred and lies, and yet almost exactly the same. People who had never learned to think but who were storing up in their hearts and bellies and muscles the power that would one day overturn the world. If there was hope, it lay in the prose. Without having read to the end of the book, he knew that that must be Goldstein's final message. The future belonged to the prose, and could, be in, could he be sure that when their time came, the world they constructed would not be just as alien to him, Winston Smith, as the world of the party? Yes, because at the least it would be a world of sanity. Where there is equality, there can be sanity. Sooner or later it would happen. Strength would change into consciousness. The proles were immortal. You could not doubt it when you looked at the valiant figure in the yard. You could not doubt it. <laughs> I love it when I have those Italian moments uh, more often than other times. I was just thinking how, you know, this just makes me think of how many people believe that respect is earned. 
you know, this is where I say respect is given because that's how you really have equality. And respect is given means that if someone does something that is not respectful toward others, the respectful thing to do is to stop them, you know? And nobody respectful would ever do that in the first place. So when people say respect is earned, it's because they still believe in the pyramid scheme and they don't realize what truly they are saying when they're repeating that slogan from the cult. But that's, of course, just my opinion. And of course, you know, if I had to go with the credo that respect is earned, most of you haven't earned it, so I wouldn't give any to you. So thank God I don't. I call you out on your bullshit, but remember one thing. I've always helped all of you when you needed the help, even after you treated me like shit. So that says something, actions over words. And I don't go around and shout it, oh, I helped that person, I helped, no. It's always very general if I say something. In the end, their awakening would come. And until that happened, though it might be a thousand years, they would stay alive against all the odds, like birds, passing on from body to body, the vitality which the party did not share and could not kill. Do you remember, he said, the thrush that sang to us that first day at the edge of the wood? He wasn't singing to us, said Julia. He was singing to please himself. Not even that. He was just singing. The birds sang, the proles sang, the party did not sing. All around the world, in London and New York, in Africa and Brazil, and in the mysteri mysterious forbidden lands beyond the frontiers, in the street of Paris and Berlin, in the villages of the endless Russian plain, in the bazaars of China and Japan, everywhere stood the same solid, unconquerable figure, made monstrous by work and childbearing, toiling from birth to death and still singing. Out of those mighty loins a race of conscious beings must one day come. You were the dead, theirs was the future. But you could share in that future if you kept alive the mind as they kept alive the body and passed on the secret doctrine that two plus two make four. We are the dead, he said. We are the dead, echoed Julia dutifully. You are the dead, said an iron voice behind them. They sprang apart. Winston's entrails seemed to have turned into ice. He could see the white all around the irises of Julia's eyes. Her face had turned a milky yellow. The smear of rouge that was still on each cheekbone stood out sharply, almost as though unconnected with the skin beneath. You are the dead, repeated the iron voice. It was behind the picture, breathed Julia. It was behind the picture, said the voice. Remain exactly where you are. Make no movement till you're ordered. It was starting. It was starting at last. They could do nothing except stand gazing into one another's eyes to run for life, to get out of the house before it was too late. No such thought occurred to them. Unthinkable to disobey the iron voice from the wall. There was a snap as though a catch had been turned back and a crash of breaking glass. The picture had fallen to the floor, uncovering the telescreen behind it. Now they can see us, said Julia. Now we can see you, said the voice. Stand out in the middle of the room. Stand back to back.
Clasp your hands behind your heads. Do not touch one another. They were not touching, but it seemed to him that he could feel Julia's body shaking, or perhaps it was merely the shaking of his own. He could just stop his teeth from chattering, but his knees were beyond his control. There was a sound of trampling boots below, inside the house and outside. The yard seemed to be full of men. Something was being dragged across the stones. The woman singing had stopped abruptly. There was a long rolling clang as though the wash tub had been flung across the yard, and then a confusion of angry shouts which ended in a yell of pain. The house is surrounded, said Winston. The house is surrounded, said the voice. He heard Julia snap her teeth together. I suppose we may as well say goodbye, she said. You may as well say goodbye, said the voice. And then another quiet different voice, quite different voice, a thin cultivated voice, which Winston had the impression of having heard before, struck in. And by the way, but while we are on the subject, here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Something crashed onto the bed behind Winston's back. The head of a ladder had been thrust through the window and had burst into the frame. Someone was climbing through the window. There was a stampede of boots up the stairs. The room was full of solid men in black uniforms with iron-shod boots on their feet and truncheons in their hands. Winston was not trembling another, any longer. Even in his eyes, he barely moved. One thing alone mattered, to keep still, to keep still, and not give them an excuse to hit you. A man with a smooth prizefighter's jowl, in which the mouth was only a slit, because opposite, a slit paused opposite him, balancing his truncheon meditatively between thumb and forefingers, and forefinger, sorry. Winston met his eyes. The feeling of nakedness with one's hand behind one's head and one's face and the body all exposed was almost unbearable. The man protruded the tip of a white tongue, licked the place where he, his lips should have been, and then passed on. There was another crash. Someone had picked up the glass paperweight from the table and smashed it to pieces on the hard stone. The fragment of coral, a tiny crinkle of pink like a sugar rosebud from a cake, rolled across the mat. How small, thought Winston, how small it always was. There was a gasp and a thump behind him, and he received a violent kick on the ankle, which nearly flung him off his balance. One of the men had smashed his fist into Julia's solar plexus, doubling her up like a pocket ruler. She was thrashing about on the floor, fighting for breath. Winston dared not to turn his head over, even by a millimeter, but sometimes <clears throat> her livid, gasping face came within the angle of his vision. Even in his terror, it was as though he could feel the pain in his own body, the deadly pain which nevertheless was less urgent than the struggle to get back her breath. He knew what it was like, the terrible, agonizing pain which was there all the while but could not be suffered yet because before all else it was necessary to be able to breathe. Then two of the men hoisted her up by knees and shoulders and carried her out of the room 
like a sack. Winston had a glimpse of her face upside down, yellow and contorted, with the eyes shut, and still with a smear of rouge on either cheek, and that was the last he saw of her. He stood dead still. No one had hit him yet. Thoughts which came of their own accord but seemed totally uninteresting began to feel, to flit through his mind. He wondered where they had got Mr. Carrington. He wondered what they had done to the woman in the yard. He noticed that he badly wanted to urinate and felt a faint surprise because he had done so only two or three hours ago. <laughs> he didn't have my issues. He noticed that the clock on the mantelpiece said nine, meaning twenty-one, but the light seemed too strong. Would not, would not the light be fading at twenty-one hours on an August evening? He wondered whether after all, the Jul all he and Julia had mistaken the time, had slept the clock around and thought it was twenty-thirty, when really it was not 80.30 on the following morning, but he did not pursue the thought further. It was not interesting. There was another lighter step in the passage. Mr. Carrington came into the room. The demeanor of the black uniformed men suddenly became more subdued. Something had also changed in Mr. Carrington's appearance. His eyes fell on the fragment of the glass paperweight. Pick up those pieces, he said sharply. A man stopped to obey. The Cockney accent had disappeared. Winston suddenly realized whose voice it was that he had heard a few moments ago in the telescreen. Mr. Carrington was still wearing his old velvet jacket, but his hair, which had been almost white, had turned black. Also, he was not wearing his spectacles. He gave Winston a, sim a single sharp glance as though verifying his identity, and then paid no more attention to him. He was still recognizable, but he was not the same person any longer. His body had straightened and seemed to have grown bigger. His face had undergone only tiny changes that had nevertheless worked a complete transformation. The black eyebrows were less bushy, the wrinkles were gone, the whole lines of the face seemed to have altered, even the nose seemed shorter. It was the alert, cold face of a man of about five and thirty. It occurred to Winston that for the first time in his life he was looking with knowledge at a member of the Thought Police. <laughs> so now they got caught. It's only twenty minutes, so I guess we can start uh, the third part. So, three. So, it says three hours and four minutes left in chapter. <laughs> That's insane. So, we'll split it up. So, we'll start it and then... It's certainly becoming insane. Eh? Poor Julia. She's probably food for the worms right now. It's not funny, but we have to crack some jokes, otherwise, you know, the, the worms gotta eat too, right? It's better not me. me. It, your opinion changes when you suddenly become on the, you know, one of the items on the menu. 
you start looking at things a little differently, I think. Maybe that's what most people need to go through before they they decide to become a little more, you know, veganized. Alright, so he did not know where he was. Presumably, he was in the Ministry of Love, but there was no way of making certain. He was in a high-ceilinged, windowless cell with walls of glittering white porcelain. Concealed lamps flooded it with cold light, and there was a low, steady humming sound which he supposed had something to do with the air supply. A bench or shelf just wide enough to sit on ran on to sit on, sorry, ran round the wall, broken only by the door, and at the end opposite the door, a lavatory hand with no wooden seat. There were four telescreens, one in each wall. Lovely. There was a dull aching in his belly. It had been there ever since they had bundled him into the clothes van and driven him away. But he was also hungry, with a gnawing, unwholesome kind of hunger. It might be 24 hours since he had eaten. It might be 36. He still did not know, probably never would know whether it had been morning or evening when they arrested him. Since he was arrested, he had not been fed. He sat as still as he could on the narrow bench with his hands crossed on his knee. He had already learned to sit still. If you made unexpected movements, they yelled at you from the telescreen. But the craving for food was growing upon him. Upon him. What he longed for above all was a piece of bread. He had an idea that there were a few breadcrumbs in the pocket of his overalls. It was even possible, he thought this, because from time to time something seemed to tickle his leg, that there might be a sizable bit of crust there. Jeez. In the end, the temptation to find out overcome, overcame his fear. He slipped a hand into his pocket. Smith! yelled a voice from the telescreen. 6779 Smith W. Hands out of pockets in the cells. <laughs> you know, he should just do that. He sat still again, his hands crossed on his knee. Before being brought here, he had been taken to another place, which must have been an ordinary prison or a temporary lockup used by the patrols. He did not know how long he had been there, some hours, at any rate. With no clocks and no daylight, it was hard to gauge the time. It was a noisy, evil-smelling place. They had put him into a cell similar to the one he was now in, but filthily dirty and at all times crowded by 10 or 15 people. The majority of them were common criminals, but there were a few political prisoners among them. He had sat silent against the wall, jostled by dirty bodies, too preoccupied by fear and the pain in his belly to take much interest in his surroundings, but still noticing the astonishing difference in demeanor between the party prisoners and the others. The party prisoners were always silent and terrified, but the ordinary criminals seemed to care nothing for anybody. They yelled insults at the guards, fought back fiercely when their belongings were impounded, wrote obscene words on the floor, ate, smuggled food, which they produced from mysterious hiding places in their clothes, and even shouted down the telescreen when he tried to restore order. 
On the other hand, some of them seem to be on good terms with the guards, call them by nicknames and try to whittle cigarettes through the spy hole in the door. The guards, too, treat the common criminals with a certain forbearance, even when they had to handle them roughly. There was much talk about the forced labor camps to which most of the prisoners expected to be sent. It was all right in the camps he gathered, so long as you had good contacts and knew the ropes. There were bribery, favoritism, and racketeering of every kind. There were homosexuality and prostitution. There was even illicit alcohol distilled from potatoes. The positions of trust were given only to the common criminals, especially the gangsters and the murderers who form a sort of aristocracy. Well, yeah, of course. All the dirty jobs were done by the politicals. There was a constant common go of prisoners of every description. Drug peddlers, thieves, bandits, black marketeers, drunks, prostitutes. Some of the drunks were so violent that the other prisoner had to combine to suppress them. An enormous wreck of a woman, aged about 60, with great tumbling breasts and thick coils of white hair, which had come down in her struggles, was carried in, kicking and shouting by four guards who had held who had the hold of her one at each corner. <laughs> they wrenched off the boots with which she had been trying to kick them and dumped her down across Winston's lap, almost breaking his tight bones. His thigh bones, sorry, not tight. <laughs> I'm sure his bones weren't that tight, <laughs> considering himself. Poor bastard. Maybe he had osteoporosis, you know. The woman hoisted herself upright and followed them out with a yell of, F bastards. Then, F bastards. Then, noticing that she was sitting on something uneven, she slid off Winston's knees onto the bench. Beg pardon, dearies, she said. I wouldn't sat on you, only the buggers put me there. They don't know to treat a lady, do they? She paused, patted her breast, and belched. <laughs> Jeez. Pardon, she said, I ain't myself quite. She leant forward and vomited copiously on the floor. That's better, she said, leaning back with closed eyes. Never keep it down, that's what I say. Get it up while it's fresh on your stomach, like. She revived, turned to have another look at Winston, and seemed immediately to take a fancy to him. Oh yeah, give him a big kiss. She put a vast arm round his shoulder and drew him toward her, breathing beer and vomit into his face. What's your name, dearie? She says. She said. Smith, said Winston. Smith? said the woman. That's funny. <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes I have to make fun. My name's Smith too. Why? She added sentimentally. I might be your mother. She might thought Winston be his mother. She was about the right age and physique, and it was probable that people changed somewhat after 20 years in a forced labor camp. No one else has spoken to him. To a surprising extent, the ordinary criminals ignored the party prisoners. The polites, they called them, with a sort of uninterested contempt. The party prisoners seemed terrified of speaking to anybody, and above all, speaking to one another. Only once, when two party members, both women, were pressed close together on the bench, he overheard amid the din of voices a few hurriedly whispered words, and in particular a reference to something called 
room 101, which he did not understand. It might be two or three hours ago that they had brought him here. The dull pain in his belly never went away, but sometimes it grew better and sometimes worse, and his thoughts expanded or contracted accordingly. When it grew worse, he thought only of the pain itself and of his desire for food. When it grew better, panic told him of him. Pa panic took hold of him, sorry. There were moments when he foresaw the things that would happen to him with such actuality that his heart galloped and his breath stopped. He felt the smash of truncheons on his elbows and iron-shod boots on his shins. He saw himself groveling on the floor, screaming for mercy through the broken teeth. He hardly thought of Julia. He could not fix his mind on her. He loved her and would not betray her, but that was only a fact known as he knew the rules of arithmetic. He felt no love for her, and he hardly even wondered what was happening to her. He thought oftener of O'Brien with a flickering hope. O'Brien must know that he had been arrested. The Brotherhood, he had said, never tried to save its members. But there was the razor blade. They would send the razor blade if they could. There would be perhaps five seconds before the guards could rush into the cell. The blade would bite into him with a sort of burning coldness, and even the fingers that held it, but held, <laughs> held it, would be cut to the bone. Jesus, just so gross. Everything came back to his sick body, which, with, with, which shrank trembling from the smallest pain. He was not certain that he would use the razor blade, even if he got the chance. It was more natural to exist from moment to moment, except in another ten minutes, life even with the certainty that there was torture at the end of it. Sometimes he tried to calculate the number of porcelain bricks in the walls of the cell. It should have been easy, but he always lost count at some point or another. More often he wondered where he was and what time of day it was. At one moment he felt certain that it was broad daylight outside, and at the next, equally certain that it was pitch darkness. In this place, he knew instinctively the lights would never be turned out. It was the place with no darkness. He saw now why O'Brien had seemed to recognize the illusion. In the Ministry of Love, there were no windows. His cell might be at the heart of the building or against its outer wall. It might be ten floors below ground or thirty above it. He moved himself mentally from place to place and tried to determine by the feeling of his body whether he had perched high in the air or buried deep underground. There was a sound of marching boots outside. The steel door opened with a clank. A young officer, a trim black uniform figure, who seemed to glitter all over with polished leather and whose pale, straight-featured face was like a wax max, stepped smartly through the doorway. He motioned to the guards outside to bring in the prisoners they were leading. The poet, Ampleforth, shambled into the cell. The door changed shut again. Ampleforth made one or two uncertain movements from side to side, as though having some idea that there was another door to go out of, and then began to wander up and down the cell. He had not yet noticed Winston's presence. His troubled eyes were gazing at the wall about a meter above, the level of Winston's head. He was shoeless, large, dirty toes were sticking out of the holes in his socks. He was almost he was also several days away from a shave. 
A scrubby beard covered his face to the cheekbones, giving him an air of ruffianisms, ruffianism that uh, went oddly with his large, weak frame and nervous movements. Okay. Ruffon. Ruffonism. A violent person, especially one involved in crime. Okay, because if, if Ruffiano in Italian is someone who, you know, is really like, come oh, on, he really knows how to, you know, play, so it's kind of funny. Ruffinism. I guess it's uh, like rough, but it's not written like rough. It's okay, it's German. See, and it does say from Italian Ruffiano. That's funny. <laughs> so. Raffia scabs curve of Germanic origin. But then they use it, uh, Ruffiano, as you know. It's someone who sucks up also to you when you call someone Ruffiano in Italian, at least where I'm from. So I don't know. It might be dialect uh, more. I'm wondering. I've been away for so long, who the fuck knows, right? <laughs> no, but then I want to look into it now. But anyway, ruffianism that went oddly with his large, weak frame and nervous movements. Winston roused himself a little from his lethargy. He must speak to Ampleforth and risk the yell from the telescreen. It was even conceivable that uh, Ampleforth was the bearer of the razor blade. Ampleforth, he said. There was no yell from the telescreen. Ampleforth paused mildly, startled. His eyes focused themselves slowly on Winston. Ah, oh, Smith, he said, you too. What are you in for? To tell you the truth, he sat down awkwardly on the bench opposite Winston. There is only one offense, is there not, he said. And have you committed it? Apparently I have. He put a hand to his forehead and pressed his temples for a moment, as though trying to remember something. These things happen, he began vaguely. I have been able to recall one instance, a possible instance, it was an indiscretion, undoubtedly. We were producing a definite edition of the poems of Kipling. I allowed the word God to remain at the end of a line. I could not help it. He added almost indignantly, raising his face to look at Winston. It was impossible to change the line. The rhyme was rod. Do you realize that there are only 12 rhyme to rod, rhymes to rod in the entire language? For days I had wrecked my brains. There was no other rhyme. The expression on his face changed. The annoyance passed out of it, and for a moment he looked almost pleased. A sort of intellectual warmth, the joy of the pedant who was, uh, who has found out some useless fact, shone through the dirt and shrubby hair. Has it ever occurred to you, he said, that the whole history of English poetry has been determined by the fact that the English language lacks rhymes? No, the particular thought that has never occurred to Winston, nor in the circumstances did it strike him as very important or interesting. Do you know what time of day it is, he said? Ample force looks startled again. I had hardly thought about it. They arrested me, it could be two days ago, perhaps three. His eyes flitted round the walls as though he half expected to find a window somewhere. There is no difference between night and day in this place. I do not see how one can calculate the time. 
They talked desultorily for some minutes. Desultorily. Desultory. Lacking a plan, purpose, or, enth or enthusiasm. And it comes from where? Like you go often from one subject to another, like I do. Occurring randomly or occasionally. From Latin, desultorious, superficial. Literally, relating to a Voltaire from desultor, Voltaire. From the verb desilire. Okay, so there you go. Desultory, desultorily for some minutes. Come on. <laughs> and then, without apparent reason, a yell from the telescreen bade them be silent. Winston sat quietly, his hands crossed. Ampleworth, too large to sit in comfort on the narrow bench, fidgeted from side to side, clasping his lank, his lank hands with first round one knee, then round the other. The telescreen barked at him to keep still. Time passed. Twenty minutes, an hour. It was difficult to judge. Once more, there was a sound of boots outside. Winston entrails contracted. Soon, very soon, perhaps in five minutes, perhaps now, the tramp of boots would mean that his own turn had come. The door opened. The cold-faced young officer stepped into the cell with a brief movement of the hand. He indicated ample Ampleforth, room 101, he said. Ampleforth marched clumsily out between the guards, his face vaguely perturbed, but uncomprehending. What seemed like a long time passed. The pain in Winston's belly had revived. His mind sagged round and round on the same track, like a ball falling again and again into the same series of slots. He had only six thoughts. The pain in his belly, a piece of bread, the blood, and the screaming. O'Brien, Julia, the razor blade. There was another spasm in his entrails. The heavy boots were approaching. As the door opened, the wave of air that it created brought in a powerful smell of cold sweat. Parsons walked into the cell. He was wearing khaki shorts and a sports short. This time Winston was startled into self-forgetfulness. You here, he said. Parsons gave Winston a glance in which there was neither interest nor surprise, but only misery. He began walking jerkily up and down, evidently unable to keep still. Each time he straightened his pudgy knees, it was apparent that they were trembling. His eyes had a wide, open, staring look as though he could not prevent himself from gazing at something in the middle distance. "'What are you in for?' said Winston. "'Thought crime?' said Parsons, almost blubbering. The tone of his voice implied at once a complete admission of his guilt and a sort of incredulous horror that such a word could be applied to himself. He paused opposite Winston and began eagerly appealing to him. You don't think they'll shoot me, do you, old chap? They don't shoot you if you haven't actually done anything, only thoughts which you can't help. I know they gave you a fair hearing, or I trust them for that. 
They'll know my record, won't they? You know what kind of a chap I was. Not a bad chap in my way. Not brainy, of course, but keen. I tried to do my best for the party, didn't I? I'll get off my five years, don't you think? Or even ten years. A chap like me could make himself pretty useful in a labor camp. They wouldn't shoot me for going off the rails just once. Are you guilty? said Winston. Of course I'm guilty, cried Parsons with a servile glance at the telescreen. You don't think the party would arrest an innocent man, do you? His rug-like face grew calmer and even took on a slightly sanctimonious expression. Such crime is a dreadful thing, old man, he said sententiously. It's insidious. It can get hold of you without your even knowing it. Sorry, I just had to do it. Do you know how it got hold of me? In my sleep? Of course. It's not your, his fault, right? Yes, that's a fact. There I was, working away, trying to do my bit, and never knew I had any bad stuff in my mind at all. And then I started talking in my sleep. Do you know what they heard me saying? He sank his voice, like someone who is obliged for medical reasons to utter an obscenity. Down with Big Brother. Yes, I said that. I said it over and over again, it seems. Between you and me, old man, I am glad they got me before it went any further. Do you know what I'm doing to what I'm going to say to them when I got up before the tribunal? Thank you, I'm going to say. Thank you for saving me before it was too late. Who denounced you? said Winston. It was my little daughter, said Parsons with a sort of doleful pride. She listened at the keyhole, heard what I was saying, and nipped off to the patrols the very next day. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? I don't bear her any grudge for it. In fact, I'm proud of her. It shows I brought her up in the right spirit, anyway. He made a few more jerky movements up and down several times, casting a longing glance at the lavatory pan. Then he suddenly ripped down his shirts. Excuse me, old man, he said. I can't help it. It's the waiting. He, he plumped his large posteriors onto the lavatory pan. Winston covered his face with his hands. Smith! yelled a voice from the telescreen. 6079 Smith W. Uncover your eyes. No faces covered in the cells. <laughs> Winston uncovered his face. Parsons used the lavatory loudly and abundantly. It then turned out that the plug was, was defective and the cells tank abominably for hours afterwards wonderful. Parsons was removed. More prisoners came and went mysteriously. One, a woman, was consigned to room 101, and Winston noticed seemed to shrivel and turn a different color when she heard the words. A time came when, if it had been morning when he was brought here, it would be afternoon, or if it had been afternoon, then it would be midnight. There were six prisoners in the cell, men and women, all sat very still, opposite Winston. There sat a man with a chinless, toothy face exactly like that of some large, harmless rodent. <laughs> His fat, mottled cheeks were so pouched that the bottom that it was difficult not to believe that he had little stores of food tucked away there. His pale gray eyes fitted <laughs> timorously from face to face 
and turned quickly away when he caught anyone's eye. The door opened and another prisoner was brought in, whose appearance sent a momentary chill through Winston. He was a commonplace, mean-looking man who might have been an engineer or technician of some kind. But what was startling was the emaciation of his face. It was like a skull. Because of its thinness, the mouth and eyes looked disproportionately large, and the eyes seemed filled with a murderous, unappeasable hatred of somebody or something. The man sat down on the bench at a little distance from Winston. Winston did not look at him again, but the tormented skull-like face was as vivid in his mind as though it had been straight in front of his eyes. Suddenly he realized what was the matter. The man was dying of starvation. The same thought seemed to occur almost simultaneously to everyone in the cell. There was a very faint stirring all the way around the bench. The eyes of the chinless man kept flitting toward the skull-faced man, then turning guiltily away, then being dragged back by an irresistible attraction. Presently he began to fidget on his seat. At last he stood up, waddled clumsily across the cell, dug down into the pocket of his overalls, and with an abashed air held out a grimy piece of bread to the skull-faced man. There was a furious, deafening roar from the telescreen. The chinless man jumped in his tracks. The skull-faced man had quickly thrust his hands behind his back, as though demonstrating to all the world that he refused the gift. Bumstead, roared the voice, 2713 Bumstead J. Let fall that piece of bread. The chinless man dropped a piece of bread on the floor. Remain standing where you are, said the voice. Face the door, make no movement. The chinless man obeyed. His large, pouchy cheeks were quivering uncontrollably. The door clanged open. As the young officer entered and stepped aside, there emerged from behind him a short, stumpy guard with enormous arms and shoulders. Arms and shoulders. He took his stand opposite the chinless man and then, at a signal from the officer, let free a straightful, a straightful blow with all the weight of his body behind it, full in the chinless man's mouth. The force of it seemed almost to knock him clear of the floor. His body was flung across the cell and fetched up again the base of the lavatory seat. For a moment he lay as though stunned, with dark blood oozing from his mouth and nose, a very faint whimpering or squeaking, which seemed unconscious, came out of him. Then he rolled over and raised himself unsteadily on hands and knees. Amid a stream of blood and saliva, the two halves of a dental plate fell out of his mouth. The prisoners sat very still, their hands crossed on their knees. The chinless man climbed back into his place. Down one side of his face the flash was darkening. His mouth had swollen into a shapeless cherry-colored mass with a black hole in the middle of it. From time to time a little blood dripped onto the breast of his overalls. His gray eyes still flitted from face to face, more guiltily than ever, as though he were trying to discover 
how much the others despised him for his humiliation. The door opened. With a small gesture, the officer indicated the skull-faced man. Room 101, he said. There was a gasp and a flurry at Winston's side. The man had actually flung himself on his knees on the floor, with his hands clasped together. Comrade, officer, he cried, you don't have to take me to that place. Haven't I told you everything already? What else is it you want to know? There's nothing I wouldn't confess, nothing. Just tell me what it is, and I'll confess it straight off. Write it down, and I'll sign it, anything. Not room 101. Room 101, said the officer. I'll take all the mystery juice you want to give me. I promise. I promise. I don't care what's inside of you. <laughs> I'm just so scared. That's how you all were. For something invented. Bravo. You're so smart. Yeah, same shit, man. The man's face, already very pale, turned the color Winston would not have believed possible. It was definitely, unmistakably, a shade of green. Do anything to me, he yelled. You've been starving me for weeks. Finish it off and let me die. Shoot me, hang me. Sentence me to 25 years. Is there somebody else you want me to give away? Just say who it is and I'll tell you anything you want. I don't care who it is or what you do to them. I've got a wife and three children. The biggest of them is in six years old. You can take the whole lot of them and cut their throats in front of my eyes and I'll stand by and watch it, but not room 101. Room 101, said the officer. The man looked frantically around at the other prisoners, as though with some idea that he could put another victim in his own place. His eyes settled on the smashed face on the chinless man. He flung out a lean arm. That's the one you ought to be taking, not me, he shouted. You didn't hear what he was saying after they bashed his face. Give me a chance and I'll tell you every word of it. He's the one that's against the party, not me. The guard stepped forward. The man's voice rose to a shriek. You didn't hear me. You didn't hear him, he repeated. Something went wrong with the telescreen. He's the one you want. Take him, not me. <laughs> Cowards, eh? Cowards always apply violence with those who cannot defend themselves. The two sturdy guards had stopped to take him by the arms, but just at this moment the flung, he flung himself across the floor at the cell and grabbed one of the iron legs that supported the bench. He had set up a wordless howling like an animal. The guards took hold of him to wrench him loose but he clung on with astonishing strength. For perhaps twenty seconds they were hauling at him. The prisoners sat quiet, their hands crossed on their knees. Looking straight in front of them, the howling stopped. The man had, not, had no breath left for anything except hanging on. Then there was a different kind of cry. A kick from a guard's boot had broken the fingers of one of his hands. They dragged him to his feet. Room 101, said the officer. The man was led out, walking unsteadily, with head sunken, nursing his crushing hand, all the fight gone out of him. A long time passed. It is. It had been midnight when the skull-faced man was taken away. It was morning. If morning, it was afternoon. Winston was alone, and had been alone for hours. The pain of sitting on the narrow bench 
was such that often he got up and walked about, unreproved by the telescreen. The piece of bread still lay where the chinless man had dropped it. At the beginning, he needed a hard effort not to look at it, but presently hunger gave way to thirst. His mouth was sticky and evil-tasting. The humming sound and um, um, unvarying white light can you imagine? Induced a sort of faintness, an empty feeling inside his head. He would get up because the ache in his bones was no longer bearable, and then would sit down again almost at once because he was too dizzy to make sure of staying on his feet. Whenever his physical sensations were a little under control, the terror returned. Sometimes, with a fading hope, he thought of O'Brien and the razor blade. It was thinkable that the razor blade might arrive concealed in his food, if he were ever fed. More dimly, he thought of Julia. Somewhere or other, she was suffering, perhaps far worse than he. She might be screaming with pain at his moment. He thought, if I could save Julia by doubling my own pain, would I do it? Yes, I would. But that was merely an intellectual decision taken because he knew that he ought to take it. He did not feel it. In this place you could not feel anything, except pain and the foreknowledge of pain. Besides, was it possible, when you were actually suffering it, to wish for any reason, whatever, that your own pain should increase? But that question was not answerable yet. The boots were approaching again. The door opened. O'Brien came in. Winston started to to Winston started to his feet. The shock of the side had driven all caution out of him. For the first time in many years he forgot the presence of the telescreen. They've got you too, he cried. They've got me a long time ago, said O'Brien, with a mild, almost regretful, regretful irony. He stepped aside. From behind him there emerged a broad-chested guard with a long black truncheon in his hand. You knew this, Winston, said O'Brien. Don't deceive yourself. You did know it. You have always known it. Yes, he saw now. He had always known it. But there was no time to think of that. All he had eyes for was the truncheon in the guard's hand. It might fall anywhere, on the crown, on the tip of the ear, on the upper arm, on the elbow. The elbow! He had slumped to his knees, almost paralyzed, clasping the stricken elbow with his other hand. Everything had exploded into yellow light. Inconceivable, inconceivable that one blow could cause such pain. The light cleared, and he could see the other two looking down at him. The guard was laughing at his contortions. One question at any rate was answered. Never for any reason on earth could you wish for an increase of pain. Of pain you could wish only one thing, that it should stop. Nothing in the world was so bad as physical pain. In the face of pain, there are no heroes, no heroes, he saw over and over, as he writhed on the floor. <laughs> I'm sure I read that wrong. No, writhed on the floor. That was, it's to make a continual twisting and squirming movements or contortions, just in case you don't know. Clutching uselessly at his disabled left arm. 
Okay, so that was the end of the first part. So that's good. <laughs> because this is where we're gonna end, because it's too much otherwise. I mean, this is really violent and really, you know, gross. And unfortunately, that's how many people operate, you know, they they like to scare people and with all this violence and then, you know, they try and come across as superior in what they do. But in reality, violence is always the weapon of the weak, right? Especially when you use it with those who are unarmed and cannot protect themselves with the same weapons. So it's pretty pathetic, but that's what... Uh, those who wish to rise to power always do, right? There is not even one of them who hasn't used violence in some form or another. And that's always the case when you try and impose your own will on others. And that's why being non-vegan is part of the problem, because you are trying to impose your will on others. And today, most people in the here don't need to. And those who really need to are because it's because they've been put in that position, because in reality there is enough for everybody, but obviously they don't want everybody to be fine. So until we get to the second one, I have a good one, and I'll take a break. I have other things to do right now, so I'll upload this one, and if I don't get to read more later, I'll see you for sure tomorrow, if you're watching this on Odyssey, or if you're following the podcast itself. So be good and uh, remember that um, cowards are always the ones who comply with what is imposed through tyrannical systems and those who stand up are never the cowards. So all of you who said no to the mystery juice, compliments. And all of you who took mystery juice without knowing the ingredients of, show that uh, you don't have any form of self-respect and surely don't realize what true science is so let's hope you realize open your eyes and stop complying with bullshit because the sooner you do the quicker all of this bullshit will stop ciao belly be the leader